Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. This is part two of our interview with Kevin Can, powerlifting coach. If you had not listened to part one, I would highly suggest you do that. But without further ado, we join myself, Quinn Hennick, Jared Maynard, John Flagg, and Kevin Can in the discussion. Enjoy. Kevin, on your mood questionnaires, I run into, I want to kind of explain the problems that I've run into with these. And I, I want to see if you have the same issues or, or how you implement those. I've gone back and forth on these types of, of pre-training mood questionnaires or pre-scores, like readiness scores, things like this. And I've found that it doesn't actually change what we do in the sense of, we're still going to just monitor as we go. Like if, if somebody rates their mood as whatever poor or whatever that means, you know, however you're scoring those suboptimal, my response is going to be, all right, well, let's, let's start warming up. See how you feel. If they rate their mood as great, I'm going to say, cool, start warming up. Let's see how you feel. And then I was also finding that when they were, if they were rating their mood as poor, it was just almost like, just reinforcing that fact. Like they, they, you know, they we were coming in a little bit blah and then up, oh, I'm going to rate myself as blah and I'm blah today. Are, how are you, are you seeing some good patterning and correlation to, you know, per, mood questionnaires, performance in the gym? And how do you reconcile somebody who has a, a decreased mood questionnaire, but then crushes it in the training session? Cause that's kind of part of what we see too. Yeah. So this is where I think communication is extremely important. Number one. So we just use a one to five scale. Three is normal. Two would be fatigued. One very fatigued. And then it would go the opposite direction. Excited, very excited. Um, so for me as a coach, when I'm looking at it, I'm just looking for like trends. So if I see a lot of ones or twos, it's more of a relationship piece. So, Hey, John, I see you're putting a lot of ones and twos on your, on your sheet. What, what's going on? Um, and so like, we can just have those conversations. It just helps me like catch things, you know, cause some people just don't want to talk about a lot of, a lot of their, uh, like issues outside of the gym. So it's just kind of a way just to make sure that I have something there. And I try to keep it as low key as possible for exactly what you were saying, Quinn, if you have somebody who they come into the gym and how many hours did you sleep? Five, how many calories did you eat? Less than I'm Five. supposed to. Yeah. Like, you know, and all of a sudden they're like, oh shit, I was feeling good, but now performance is going to suck because now I'm aware of all of these things. Um, so I just use, it's just more of just a general, I just kind of skim through the week just to make sure that, you know, there's nothing crazy going on. That makes sense. The idea of just kind of seeing patterns that, that makes sense to me and having some subjective feel. <sighs> I, there's a couple of places I wanted to go with this. I, I think we keep it with the movement and the, and the task constraints, because I've heard you talk a little bit about correct, how you correct 
we'll call them, we'll call them behaviors or movement patterns that you feel are suboptimal in the sense of just leverage, just force production. I feel like if you were moving, if you were positioned this way, you would be able to produce more force and lift more weight. How do you, let's say it's somebody's pitching forward in the back squat. It's a good morning back squat or something like that. We've got this, we'll, two ends of the spectrum. One end of the spectrum is you just vomit verbal cues on them. You tell them to fire particular muscles or to, you know, do something else. So stay up, stay more upright. Keep, keep your torso up, tighten your core, squeeze your glutes, these types of things versus manipulating constraints. Can you talk a little bit about your approach in changing movement patterns? Yeah, so this is another thing that I changed quite a bit once I started to understand the constraints-led approach. And I, I, I think this needs to be said, too, is the way that a constraints-led approach comes across, it becomes very easy to just create a narrative in a way where it's, you know, you can kind of just fit any exercise to fit into this. And without a true understanding of the philosophy, you're going to kind of come up short. So I think in a lot of cases when we use variations, so for the technique flaw that you were talking about, Quinn, with the pitching forward in the squat, we'll always tend to try to look at individual muscle groups. So it'll be like, all right, if he's pitching forward, well, that's where knee torque demands are the highest, so his quads must be weak, so let's throw front squats in there. So it's still got this reductionist view of the body's just kind of a, a sum of all of its muscles put together, and that this variation should, should solve the problem. But a constraints-led approach, is, it's, it's very different. So you need to look at the athlete and be like, all right, so what do I think is going to help limit their movement options because that that's what altering that task constraint is supposed to do it's supposed to kind of take away that inefficient technique while only leaving room for a few other options hopefully better ones than what they were doing before so in that case a front squat might not even be a change of constraint for that individual because it's not doing either one of those that maybe they can still get away with the same things due to their skill level within the lift the absolute loads or something like that so when I started reading more about the philosophy of constraints-led approach and, you know, this is one of the hardest things that I think, like decisions that I've made as a coach, as I said, you know what, I have this gut feeling that high bar wide stand squats would really punish that falling forward position, that falling forward um, squat pattern. So I took a few of the lifters who were far out from meets and they were of various skill levels. There was a novice, there was a couple intermediates and one more elite lifter. And I literally gave them nothing but wide stand squats in a block. And I took out um, the competition squat altogether. And a few of them ran it for four or five weeks. A couple of them ran it for eight weeks. And there were improvements, not only just in the positions, um, but also in their one rep max on the squat. And that's the most important aspect. If we're talking about self-organizing, the second hardest thing that the coach needs to do is they need to dump their bias of what a perfect lift looks like and use those objective measures to keep that bias in check to make sure that that's going on. Because I don't care if their lifts got looked better if they got weaker, because that's not that's not what we were looking for. Um, so with that high bar wide stance squat, all of a sudden, like if you look in the research, it it suggests that a wide stance squat is less quads and more hips. So it kind of goes against that whole, oh, well, it's a quad weakness leading to this. So like that skill level um, of training. And then when that happened, I was sold. So then I took everybody was not everybody, but people were pulling sumo, pulled conventional, the convention pullers, pullers 
They pulled uh, Sumo and we just started like really just mixing things up a bit and just based off of me observing what they're doing and identifying a constraint that would limit their movement options that would punish that inefficient technique and only leave room for a few other um, hopefully improved, more efficient techniques. How much of that do you think is novelty? As you're talking there, I've got two scenarios in my head. One in which you you implement the new variation just like you did, but you keep the comp lift in and so that you could start to look in real time, is that variation having carryover to the comp lift? You know, it could be the same week or it doesn't have to be the same session. The other scenario is the one that you described. New variation, take comp lift out completely. We start to get into this concept of attractors now and, and destabilizing um destabilizing attractors, but let's say they've got this this deep movement pattern, this this deep seated solution, which is pitching pitching forward in the squat. That's the solution they've come up with to get that movement pattern done. You now take out that solution completely. That could destabilize it right there, just over time it can kind of erode. But you implement, you give them a new solution and they have no choice but to try this new solution. It destabilizes that old attractor even more. Is, do you find that, just anecdotally, that that is more effective than keeping both in there so that they can they use the new attractor to get some real-time feedback and try to work in? Because that intuitively is what would make sense to me. Keep them both, so you know what I mean? But what are your thoughts on that? Does that even make sense? Yeah, and I think it, dep- it 100% depends on the lifter. Um, I think if you view the competition lift itself as... Like in, in the same as a variation, right? A, li- a lifter can only get a positive stimulus from this variation for a- X amount of time, and then eventually it just kind of gets it gets stuck. So I kind of treat it the same way. Um, but if we're going to talk about attractors with with the competition lift, so if that's their that's their attractor, right? So the the pitching forward in that squat. If I leave that competition squat in, it's it's hard to destabilize that attractor and get it to start to lean more to, towards a different attractor state if that's still pulling that that person in, into that direction. Um, I've tried it with like lighter weight where it still looks good, but it still just doesn't have that same carryover into the the heavier weight. Um, like anecdotally for me, I take out the competition lifts a lot, um, and I just. It's more about transference than it is about specificity. And I think we went down the wrong line sometimes with specific training. Because how, who's to say what's specific and what's not? I'm having them move their feet out two inches. Like that's not that much different than the competition lift. It just gives them a little bit different of a sensory feedback to just change that perceptual motor landscape just enough to make them lean more towards a different attractor state. Um, and I think leaving the comp squat in there just because it can be so strong. And if that is, if they've been doing a lot of comp squats, a lot of comp squats, it becomes deep rooted and that's where you get that plateau effect. John, going back to what you had asked about weightlifting, I think there's, there's a lot of variation in weightlifting. And I think that whether coaches know it or not, they're having this type of effect. We'll do like, you know, snatching from the floor and, and receiving the bar in a full overhead squat is is like the full snatch. That's the competition lift. But 
there's so many variations that, that we don't even think about that we do. You know, power snatches where we're catching it high, snatch balances where it's on our back and we're just punching down into the hole, hangs, going off blocks. We do that. We program that stuff almost just like, well, we're far off on competition. We Variation sounds like a good idea. Um, and it's, it's just kind of natural. But I think that that really helps in the sport of weightlifting to, to one, decrease stagnation, but to two, to keep, to make that comp lift fresh again. It almost, I hate, I'm going to use the R word of reset, but you just get, get some time away and almost like acquire some baseline skill again and some capacity again and see what your, see what patterns emerge when you bring that lift back in. And it's just like what Kevin's saying is just kind of just try something and take a step back and, and see what happens. And it's, it's scary because it's, it's, it goes against a lot of the things that we learn about. And you talked about specificity. That's probably the scariest one right there because that's what's rooted into our head the most as, as strength and conditioning coaches is specificity is king. And you made a really interesting point there that no, actually transference is what matters. What if I could tell it? What if I told you that single leg calf raises and I could show you with empirical data that single leg calf raises carried over the best to a back squat? Well, you're damn right. You would do single leg calf raises. So it's like, it's almost just, it's almost just secondary that the back squat itself happens to carry over best to the back squat. And it's, uh, we don't, we don't question it, but it's transference that seems like it's the, the most useful quality of anything. And it's not always what we think is going to be the best trans, get to get the, get the best transfer. And I think with uh, what you were just saying too, you know, we want to, it's a nonlinear process, right? And we want them to constantly self organize into the best positions for them at this given time. So if a lifter keeps that competition lift in 12 months out of the year, they're never going to explore different positions. Maybe, you know, John likes squatting with a wider stance, but maybe, you know, three, six months from now, he feels stronger in a closer stance. If we don't move the competition lift and give them those options to explore, and I think this is the idea of doing it far away from you, is allowing them to explore those options so that later on as the meet gets closer, they know which angles feel best for them to be able to put up the best numbers at a competition. Um, and you know, I think you see lifters do this all the time on the internet. It's like squats have felt like shit. So I widened my stance or I changed my shoes. I, I made this one change and now all of a sudden they, they feel great. It's something you probably could have caught on to if you just explored a lot more options, um, at a different moment in time. I think what gets confusing for people is that sometimes it changes back. I can like, okay, I, I move my feet in and now, holy shit, my, my squat feels strong. It feels the best it ever has. This must be the solution that I've missed. But don't be surprised if six months later, you're now feel better again with a slightly wider stance. Like, don't let that mind fuck you because it can. Um, just kind of allow your body to, to do what it does. These small changes, like you said, Kevin, they're not that drastic. It's not like we're having you go from, from a bicycle squat, you know, hips with stance to a sumo stance in the squat, just like, and then max effort, like max them both. Just right, one right after another. I think this type of system that you're describing 
is is so hard to implement if the athlete is not actively involved in the process. This is the problem that I find. I We work with a lot of, uh, or at least I do, work with a lot of athletes who are kind of intermediate in the, in the midst of like rehabbing an injury. And it's a very interactive process because I need to know the, I need to know the information like what, how'd you do today? You know, that's going to really, sometimes I'm programming on the, on the daily basis, day to day. What I'm going to give you tomorrow is based on how you respond today. So we got to have that feedback. And I think in an, in an injury scenario, it's more intuitive for the athlete to think that they need to be more vocal. Sometimes not, but in the performance realm, we get these athletes who are just like, I don't care. Just tell me what to do. I don't want to think. You just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. I find it very difficult to work with an athlete like that in this type of system. That's, that's athlete centric. Do you have, do you have athletes who, who tend to be like that? And how does that process go to get them to learn how to train? So a lot of the, I have a lot of lifters that have been with me for a long period of time. So that's how it used to be. It used to be, here's your program, follow the program to a T and, and, and that's that. So that's where the coach athlete relationship becomes huge. Um, so being able to explain why these, why increasing your training skill is important and why it's important for your long-term success within the sport. So you know, through that conversation and with the relationship with the athlete and stuff, most of them just kind of like buy in. And, and I think at this point, they just kind of trust me and we kind of work, work together to do it. Um, if there was, if I had a lifter at this point come in and they were just like hard pressed to follow a program, I would send them somewhere else. I just, it, it absolutely can't work, um, without, without that communication, without them actually taking the reins a little bit and like i want smart hard-working lifters that's all i like i don't i just come in here work hard do do what you're supposed to do be a positive influence to the culture of our group and and we're good like i i don't care how elite somebody is if they came in and they just wanted to follow a program and they would get a thousand likes on a video for me like that's just this is not for you so why do you keep John on the team? Because I'm a jerk. I, I look at every sheet like challenge accepted. Every single sheet. Every week. Such a man. Go, oh, yeah, Kevin, that's it? All right. <laughs> Ten more pounds. I, I have a few people like that that literally will just, they'll chip everything I put on there just like at his spike. <laughs> Which is great, too, like as a coach, understanding that, you know, that I can push them a little bit, you know, I could put something on there and know that they'll, they'll chip it and really push themselves in training. Like, it's great to know that. And even like, there's ones on the other end of the spectrum who they liked when I would tell them before, like, Hey, that looks too easy. Go up. Cause it would help build confidence. Me knowing that as a coach, I might sandbag those top sets a little bit. If I know that they're having a little bit of a down period of time. Um, so that they'll, they'll make that, they'll hit that and be like, oh, wow, that was easy. And they'll add weight so that we can improve that confidence and keep that ball rolling in a, in a more positive direction. Like, I think that's like what the constraints led approach is, is it takes the emotions of the athlete, the culture of the group, as well as the skills of the task and blends them all together into, into one program where 
before I was basically letting an Excel spreadsheet do all of that work for me. Speaking of, is there anything on that Excel spreadsheet, that fancy spreadsheet that gives you all the numbers that you still track, that you still think matters? Not a single one. Um, I think it all matters. It's just a matter of trying to identify how it works for the individual. Um, so I was using like the acute chronic work ratio for a period of time, and I was just using um, total weekly volume and then monthly volume and just kind of getting getting the ratio that way. And what I started to realize was that ratio was just all over the place. Like we would taper if we're testing 17 to 22 days out from a competition. We'd start tapering down from there, and you'd get into the really low end, low ends of um, of load, and then all of a sudden you get that spike on competition day. Nobody's getting hurt on competition day. Some lifters, uh, I was the ratio got up there pretty high, you know, one point five, one point six, one point seven, and they just it didn't even seem like they were working hard in training. So this was more sub maximal volume work um, when we were doing it at this time, and like they weren't getting hurt. And then there were times where literally far out from a meet, I would just kind of run baseline and just kind of manipulate other variables. And, you know, people would get fucked up a little bit. And it's like, it just, it was all over the place. There was so much noise that I just, you know, and it could have been, I'm using external measures, which, you know, they're arbitrary numbers until you actually put them within the context of the individual themselves. Um, But it just, it just wasn't working for me. And like, what I think was happening too is like, even though I started to realize that the data wasn't complete and wasn't telling me what I wanted it to tell me, it was still influencing my decision. So, like, these spreadsheets were pretty big and they're color coded. So, I had greens and yellows and reds. And even if I have this conscious awareness of what this data is actually telling me, there's definitely subconscious bias being driven by the colors of the sheet alone, the, you know, my past experiences, like me as a coach, it works the same way as, as a lifter, like my past experiences, my emotions, my beliefs, they're going to go into the decision making I'm making for that individual in front of me. And I, I felt that the sheet was literally, um, that that bias was negatively affecting my decision making process. When you said that you were tracking volume with the AC ratios, was that just tonnage? Uh, so for the AC ratios, that was just tonnage. Yeah. Um, I did take, so like, I mean, this sheet had average intensities for each lift, total number of lifts, total number of competition lifts. So that weren't variations. Um, the acute chronic work ratio, it had a breakdown of what percentage of the total tonnage came from bench squat deadlift. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it had a lot. I've had a like a three-month running email conversation with Eric Lagoy about implementing the AC ratios into the barbell sport, and I, my I come back to the point that we can't currently because the data, the, the ratio itself. I mean, you can do it, but the numbers are not won't be based on anything because 0.8 to 1.5 is based on field sport athletes and it's based on SRPE times time. So if you're not if you're not looking at at field sports, you're not using the same metric then 0.8 to 1.5 does not apply to the population. So you would have to, you would have to make your own AC ratio studies. You'd have to, to analyze your own data prospectively and, you know, track your injuries and see if there are any, any risk factors for that. So that's like what Eric and I have been talking about. Cause we, I've tried to use it as well at our gym and we, same problems. It's not telling us anything. 
that's useful to inform us for future training right now, but it is freaking us out. <laughs> and it's, it's making us not want to do stuff or it's making us think that we should be pushing them harder, even though subjectively they're telling us they feel like shit and objectively we can just see weight on the bars decreasing. Oh, but your AC ratio is low for whatever reason. Um, it's, I still cling on to the hope that it's, that we can figure out these metrics, like which ones really matter. But I think it's, it's gotta be some, it's gonna be have to be some like individual approach with certain metrics for this individual. But the, for whatever reason, these metrics are what matter for this individual. And we're just so far from that. I think the problem with trying to come up with uh, a metric to measure, we don't truly understand fatigue. So we can't, truly measure something that we don't really understand how it, I mean, we know it exists, but how does it truly affect performance? Like most of the research, like, you know, old school powerlifting myth is, you know, your CNS gets fried from lifting heavy and that's how you get burnt out and stuff. But if you look in the literature, most researchers have an extremely hard time even getting the nervous system to respond to that high of a level. And I think the one of the studies that actually showed that the nervous system had some negative effects showed that it recovered in 20 minutes. And it, it theorized that the other studies couldn't find any because they didn't check quick enough uh, for some of the metrics. So, you know, if we're assuming that high intensity work is, you know, frying our nervous system, I, I just, to me, that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't go with what I see. Um, and it just doesn't go with like, you know, those of us who've played other sports and like, this is the example I use a lot like to my lifters in the gym, let's say we're doing a, a really heavy triple on a squat takes nine or 10 seconds. That's literally two plays in football. So like the workload is, you know, trying to, it's, it's a matter of perspective. And like in football, there's, you know, might be a change of direction. There's a collision. There's like the work is probably even more in that football play than it is for that triple in the squat. But you know, if they're equal, if one's more than the other, like whatever, you kind of, you kind of get my point with it that I just, I don't, I don't think we're doing that much work in the gym. And if you listen to some of the stories and granted, these are all N equals one and stuff, but you know, I was watching a 30, 30 on junior Seau, um, last week. And you, you hear this about even other competitive athletes too. He would wake up at six in the morning and go hit, hit the gym. And, and he said he was hitting it hard and he was doing it because everyone else was asleep. And then midday, he'd take his friends on the team that he wanted to be better athletes and bring them to the gym, hit it hard again. Then he'd train in the gym with the team, and then he'd go practice football. And the guy played almost 20 years in the NFL. Like, granted, that's an N equals one, but, you know, there are countless stories that are like this. You know, I'm from New England, so a Patriots reference, Ty Law wrote a letter to himself once he got, you know, his younger self, once he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And it was the same thing, waking up early, putting in extra work. Um, and that was always, like, the mentality of team sports. Like, we put in the extra work, but... It just seems like in powerlifting, um, and I'm not sure how, how weightlifting uh, falls with this trend, but it seems that it's be careful of doing too much work because your nervous system could get fried. You could get hurt where you just don't see the like, you know, those NFL guys aren't even taking that our sport into consideration when they're doing our sport plus their sport. And granted, they're obviously doing a little bit less in the gym and stuff. But like, I just... I think fatigue is just one of those things that we just absolutely do not understand. We can't fully understand with our 
current technology and our current understanding of the human body in general. And to try to put metrics on it, I think is going to handcuff us no matter what. Simple questions. Think, oh, go ahead, John. Do you think some of that comes from the expectation that's set from the tradition in the sport and the the narrative that a lot of this stuff is predictable, even though it's not? So I actually think the majority of like when a lifter feels tired a few days after a training session, I think a lot of it is cultural and, and expectation bias because that's what we read and like. That's what those like older generation of power lifters kind of um, kind of just just built. Uh, I was listening. So Mike Teixeira has a podcast where he gets like a lot of these older guys on the uh, I think it's the Titans of Powerlifting. It's called and Bo, Bo Moore, who I think he's 57 years old. And the guy in the animal cage last year totaled 2000 pounds in knee sleeves in like a half an hour. Like he's still moving big weight. He's competed in over a hundred competitions, um, and he was talking. So Mike or the other guy in the podcast had asked him a question about taking time off, and he goes, "I don't like taking time off because my mind has a hard time being able to handle the heavier weights again." So he basically gets out of a meet, takes very little time off, and just starts. And it's basically like the Bulgarian method for powerlifting. What he does, he works up to heavy singles every day, and Another thing that I really liked about what he said was, so if something's not going well, so I think he used the bench as an example. Um, Before he got to the top set that he expected, it was feeling heavy, so he went down. And and this is like a weightlifting thing that I kind of steal in the gym too. He went back down, put chains on the bar, and just worked up using, you know, loading the bar up with X amount of chains and then worked up to a heavy single that ended up being heavier at the top than what he would have taken previously so he found a way to get a win on the on that training day um you know and i i found like some of those like those aspects kind of cool and he's had like brad gillingham on here who competed on, on that podcast who competed in 26 straight national level competitions without being injured like these and these guys are lifting hard in big weights frequently and i think you know and he made a good point that he didn't do he's not on drugs and i think a big part of those beliefs and like those injuries that you were seeing was because you know the the drug use that's been involved in this sport like the tissue tolerance of it just doesn't keep up over time but the ones who are just kind of doing things right seem to be able to still compete at a high level later on and it's not just one person like you could your tony harris's um dave ricks like you could literally just name a ton of these competitive world level lifters that are still competing at the world level at at a higher training age. Simple question to to ask those guys, or like the two examples that you used earlier, Junior Seau and Ty Laws. Well, what did you guys do when you were really, really tired? I wonder if they would just say, well, I just didn't go as hard. Or I just took that day off. What do you mean? Yeah, no big deal. Where we, uh, it's, I feel like we overcomplicate things a bit. But you mentioned fatigue management is is we're not good at it and i think we're scared of fatigue so when there's any hint of it the alarm bells go off like something needs to change oh we need to change this up change this drastically oh you know you deload or move to a new phase or um something like that when like you said training is a skill so if the athlete over time understands what what matters and what doesn't and also understands that they may wake up and wake up feeling like shit but going to the gym and feel like a monster 
and vice versa too. You could wake up feeling like a million bucks. And when you hit the bar, it's like, wow, I feel like garbage. I didn't realize it until it, you know, it happens either way, but you don't know until you go in there and, and start moving. So it just goes back to your, to your approach where people might listen to this and say, well, you're just, we're all just advocating just to go hard or go home. It's not that at all. It's, it's allowing mother nature to, to dictate progress. I and mean, you're using general principles of training to guide the individual. But that's why the individual is so important is because we can't take these general principles on a spreadsheet and expect the individual to react in the exact way. Right, I think with the fatigue aspect too, I think in a lot of cases when we see down performance, right? Like, you know, one of the things that we talk about around, around here a lot is expect to feel pain sometimes because it's those unexpected consequences that we tend to freak out about. And it's the same thing. You need to expect down performance days. So I think in a lot of cases, you know, when things don't happen in a linear fashion like we want them to or we expect them to, we want to find an answer to that question. So it's, oh, I must be tired. That, you know, my nutrition must be affecting this. My sleep must be affecting this. Um, and the, the interesting thing that I, I, um, I find with like a lot of my lifters is they want to blame the program right away. Like, oh, something's wrong with the program. And it, those things happen. It's a nonlinear process. There will be progressions. There will be regressions. There will be skips. There will be jumps. And you need to be able to deal with that noise. And as a coach, and the experience level of the coach, I think, plays into this. It's, you know, the coach needs to identify when it's just noise and not respond and let things happen. And the coach needs to be able to identify when it's not just noise. It's a dip in performance for another reason. And we need to adjust some things. The lifter needs to be able to identify when it's noise and the lifter needs to be able to identify when they might need something different in their program. And until like the coach and the lifter can get on that same level, it, it can be difficult, but it's, it's, it's a long-term process. And this is why sticking with a coach too is so important is because you build that relationship over time. And once you guys are on the same page, that's when you start to see like bigger and bigger things happen. Um, you know, you just, you got to embrace a certain uncertainty of things and just realize that sometimes there are no answers. It is what it is. And you need to make the best decision possible for that lifter. And that lifter needs to do the same thing for themselves at that given time. And what may be right at this time is probably not going to be right the next time. So you need to be aware of that and the evolving relationship between the coach and the lifter, the revolving relationship between the lifter and the skill of the lift and they're changing total. And, you know, we talked about the constraint of the performer. Well, if you have a novice that starts putting on muscle mass, it's going to change the way that they do the, the lifts. If a lifter loses weight, if they gain a lot of weight, like all of those things, all of those things matter. And like, you just, you're, you're giving an input with an expected output and you need to update your hypothesis based off of the data that you receive back. And I think, you know, I went from a, the data set of those volumes and intensities and all of that set and all of that stuff to basically a data set that's my intuition based off of my strong relationships with my lifters. Um, and, and like you said, it's not like we just come in here, we huff ammonia, blast music and just like crush weights. We make good training decisions. And I think if people came and actually saw how our training sessions happened, they'd be pretty impressed by the amount of communication between all of the lifters, the support, the, the decision-making, like a lot of it is actually, uh, 
like it's pretty cool to see and it's a different training environment than I've ever I've ever been in in, in my lifetime. Well, I think one of the things that makes the whole process difficult for people to understand is we've for the longest time tried to tried to correlate and link things like fatigue and things like a dip in performance and in mood to injury. And it's created this large uh, ball of fear for a lot of people where they don't want to go into those realms. The problem is we don't even know if that is the case. We don't, we're, we're terrible at predicting injury. We're terrible at figuring out when it's going to happen. Most low back pain. And, and that sort of thing is nondescript. We don't have a lot of reasons behind a lot of this stuff and people shy away from the, the uncertainty because they think they have data that correlates and, and we just don't know enough about a lot of this stuff to say that definitively. No, and we say that on the show all the time. I mean, it's, it's one of the things, it's, it's a common theme with what we talk about is we suck at telling you when you're going to get hurt or if you're going to get hurt. And linking it to some of these things is, is probably chasing ghosts. And I think in a lot of cases, that's what leads to those things. Like if you look at like barbell sports in general, just have a low risk of injury compared to other sports. But most other people aren't running out onto the field worried about getting injured. They're just worried about performing the task at hand. And I actually think this is like one of the cool things of the barbell sports is it's so mental. Like you're performing a lift for a very short amount of time, but you get a lot of time to think about. Um, you know, and I think we put these situations on our lifters. And I think there's, if coaches would embrace that uncertainty a little bit more, they'd realize that they have the freedom to do so many more things. Like, you know, if you're so certain that volume is, the main driver in performance. And if performance for this lifter is not down and you just go to increase volume, you are literally confining yourself to this small box. And eventually, sooner than later, because of how small this box is, you're gonna run into a wall. And you're not gonna know where to go because you don't you don't know how to move that box around in a manner that's gonna allow you to to keep that progress rolling forward for that lifter. And it's if you take those general principles that are that are out there and you just believe them to be 100% true all of the time and what you've read in like you know elite fts blogs and and these passed down expectations and beliefs you're going to be confided into this tiny box and i'm going to tell you you're going to have success for a period of time with your lifters and then you're going to run into a wall and you're going to keep running into that same wall until you realize that those principles, yeah, they're true, but once you narrow it down for the individual, it becomes an entirely different game. And what we believe to be true now, like, you know, and Kylie points this out in his research, like those principles, they are old. And that's the stress research has come a long way since then. And, it, you know, the Journal of Strength and Condition, I'm still reading EMG studies off of what muscles are being used most in high bar or low bar squats or safety squat bar squats or like at the end of the day, like I'm at the point where I don't even, I don't even know if that stuff matters. Like I don't think it's individual muscle groups that are weak and that's what's leading to these technical breakdowns. Like I think a lot of the information that we have is just our research is just so poor and there's nowhere to look except for older power lifters 
um, old blogs. And I think it's just it, it handcuffs and creates this handcuffs the coaches and creates this this hard to break cultural belief with the lifters getting involved in the sport. It's an understanding of just the dynamics. So your example, I'm going to increase volume and that's going to drive adaptation. That that may work. But if it works, you're you you just say, hey, cool, we're going to roll with this for a while. If and when it stops working, I think that's where people get into trouble because they're thinking this increase in volume from a quote unquote scientific standpoint, I'm progressively overloading this metric. We should continue to see progress. I'm going to continue to overload when that overload or when that progress stops. What the hell? The science didn't work. You know, what am I missing? What, what meta analysis didn't I read? When you could just say, you know what? The organism is not responding to that stressor anymore. What else can I tweak? That makes some sense. You know, like I'm not going to have you go run marathons now as a change of stressor, but we're going to change up. We got variation. We've got tempo. We've got position. All of these variables, it's constraints that we can manipulate to give you a slightly different stressor, but still further adaptation pretty much within the same construct of, of sport itself. We get, we get too locked in, I think, on the reasons of why, and we're just, we're just not quite there. Why is just, we're just, yeah. Um, the last thing that I wanted to ask you at least was about injury specifically, because you got in or are in a unique situation where you've got, you know, I don't know how often Mike and Steph and Zach are like training with you in house. But it's like, what happened? Not them specifically, but what if a lifter is to the point where we can, they've been complaining of pain consistently that's affecting their performance and doesn't seem to be, it, it seems to be such that I, I'm going to have to intervene in from a programming standpoint to, to fix this. Or maybe this is actually further enough on the realm of, Mike and Zach and Steph, where I kind of want to like push it off to them. Is there, is there a, some type of like heuristic that you're subscribing to there? Or like, how, how do you manage the injuries now that you've had, you're, you're coming at it with this approach? So typically like, you know, how I would view an injury. So how I define it as a coach, if the pain is altering mechanics and creating a significant decrease in performance, um, whatever that may be. You know, just kind of might be a gut feeling. I don't have any like hard set guidelines on that. If I can't just alter a position and regain both of those things, regain the mechanics and regain the performance, I'm immediately sending them to Mike, Zach and stuff. Um, if there's a lot of times too where, you know, my lifters still have the appeal to authority and don't get me wrong, they believe in me. But when it comes to when they're feeling pain, like I'm their performance coach where they just might need to have a conversation with, with Mike. And I might identify that early on before it's even a problem in training. And they're just like, Hey, this is bothering me. And I realize in the conversation, they're just kind of not buying what I'm selling and that they might appeal to a higher level authority when it comes to this stuff. I'll have, I'll have them uh, talk to Mike. And I think it's good too, that like Mike, Zach and Steph, they do train here in person pretty frequently. So they have run-ins with everybody. And, you know, Zach's always complaining about something hurting. So the fact that he, <laughs> that 
that he's training and something's hurting and he's he's a physical therapist that I respect. You know, for the other lifters to see that, I, I do think that there's a um, uh, a positive tie-in with all of that stuff. I like that dynamic. Is it? Do you find sometimes where you know you're going to send somebody to Mike or, or Zach or Steph, and you pretty much know exactly what they're going to say to them? But it's like what you said. You know, you try to if I try to coach my if I try to get my mom to do, to back squat her, she's not going to listen to me. But I'll send her to one of you guys, and you know, she'll love it. It's like trying to coach your family. Um, do you, do you, do when they come back, you said, Oh yeah, Mike, Mike just said this, this and this. And you're like, Oh, great. Awesome. Great idea. Mike's so smart in the back of your head. You're like, that's exactly what I fucking told you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I'm at, I'm at the point now where I think I can easily identify when that, when that's just what they need. And I don't even have that conversation with them. I'm like, Hey, I, I think you're fine. Here's why I think you're fine. Um, but it might be good to go to go talk to Mike and, and Michael uh, talk him off the ledge a little bit. There you go. Uh, well, Kevin, we're we're coming up on on an hour and a half now, so we want to be respectful of your time. We could probably talk about this stuff for days. Where can people find you? And uh, anything anything coming up on the horizon for you? Um, uh, yeah, we do. I try to do a podcast every week. Um. I'm writing up a, a bigger article now that that uh, I've undertaken like this very large project where I'm trying to put all this stuff down down on paper into like some type of like ebook type thing, but it's it's getting dense. Um, like I, I'm literally I've done not even the whole chapter on dynamics uh, dynamic systems theory, and it's like seventy something pages. <laughs> So like it gets, it gets hard to, you know, and I feel sometimes like when I talk about this stuff, it's like, I don't think I'm making any sense because there's, it's so complex and like, and there's so many layers to it that there's like, there's a lot to say. And I think a lot gets missed in, in, in poorly interpreted with some of these things. And they just, you know, people will take this concept and they'll be like, oh, well, if somebody's pitching forward in a squat and I put this variation in there, it should fix it. Cause that in that's dynamic systems theory. No, that's kind of like poorly run West side. Um, so I, you know, I'm trying to get all this down on paper. Who knows when it'll, when or if it'll ever be done. Um, but Boston Strongcast podcast, uh, we've had some of the same guests, Mike, Zach, Steph. Um, they, they've been on it. Uh, and you can, you can find me on Instagram. I have a, a basic in, Instagram handle like everyone should have. It's KW can. Um, and our team's precision powerlifting systems. Awesome, man! Thanks so much for being on. Uh, we'll have to get you on again because I think we're, we're probably going to have a lot of questions about this stuff. But I, I think it, in a good way. Yeah, you know, no, I know. I, I, I think it's good just to get the conversation rolling because, you know, like I said, this. I mean, at first I thought I understood this stuff, and like, this is just like a, a word of caution because, like, I have coaches on my team that try to like mimic this stuff and they run into problems. And like, this is what I was trying to do before. Like that's what Chico did is he broke down the lifts, identified issues within the lifts, and then he had variations to fix it. And I was just trying to take his system and apply it, but without truly understanding the, the philosophy of this stuff, the variations weren't having that same effect. Um, so understanding that like, this is, this is deep and there's a lot to it. And it's not as simple as it's not a solution for a problem. It is, it is a theory. 
and in a good theory gives you a framework that helps you deal with the entire human and that includes their emotions, their beliefs, their skill level and I treat strength as a skill for this reason. So it keeps my mindset set on applying this framework and that all frameworks they need to leave room open for new information to come in so that it can be updated over time and I, you know I think people need to understand that it's it's a lot more complex than that and we're probably wrong with most of it. Mm, mm-hmm. It'll be it'll be back to block periodization next year. We'll, we'll be back on here and say, "Oh my God, what were we thinking?" Competition lists only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Th- thanks again, Kevin, uh, Jared, and John. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the conversation, and uh, we will talk soon. Yeah. Thank you very much.